It's kind of ironic. We're talking about injustice in this world, and today's weather just doesn't seem fair. Um, but I, I'd like to um, I'd like to try and reproduce a graph that I saw in the uh, it was in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Not that I'm not that I'm typically reading the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, but I. Uh, I w saw something about this article and looked at it and wanted to show you uh, a, a graph that appears there. The graph looks something like this. And this graph is a, is a line that represents, and I'll just give it about... 65% here, and if it continued up, it would be 100. Uh, this graph is a line that represents uh, some 1,100 cases that were brought before eight judges over a period of 10 months. And they were parole board hearings. You'll see on this graph, if you can see it, there are three peaks here at sitting at about 65%, and you can see it just drops there uh, and back up to about 65%, drops back up to 65%, and then a steep drop down to almost nothing. These three little peaks here represent three times in the day. This was the beginning of the day where the judge has just had nice breakfast, feeling rested, feeling good, and as, when cases were brought before judges at that point in the day, they were very sympathetic, very favorable. And if you were fortunate enough to bring your case at that point, you would receive a 65% chance of being granted parole. This dot here is right after lunch. Again, they've had a good meal, they're feeling good, a little more rested, and got some margin to be able to think about the case and, and think favorably about the person in front of you. This final one represents uh, the time just after the afternoon coffee break. Had a little snack, drank some coffee, again, feeling a little more rested, maybe chatted with someone in the hall, and you're feeling a little more rested for maybe the first one or two cases, and then shh. If you were unfortunate enough to have your case tried, just before end of day, just before coffee break, just before lunch, you had almost a zero chance that your case would be viewed, at, viewed favorably. Almost no chance that you would be granted parole. Many people will look at statistics like this and say, this world just seems to be so unfair. Where's the... Where is the justice in a world where this is our best attempt at justice? People don't just look there, though. They'll look at, at some of the other things that are going on in our world. And we've got all kinds of them. You may have heard these statistics. In, for instance, in 1860, slavery in many parts of the world was legal. And at that at that time, there were some, uh, they estimate some 25 million slaves, and the average slave uh, w was sold for $134. Uh, 
Today, in almost everywhere in the world, slavery is illegal. But they estimate today there are some 27 million slaves in the world, and the average price that they go for is $140. 150 years, and almost nothing has changed. And people look at that, and they'll say, where is the justice in this world? It just doesn't seem fair. We look at some of the things that are in our news today. Not just human trafficking, the, the Me Too movement, political corruption, corporate greed, mass shootings. And we look at them and it feels like life isn't fair. It feels like our world isn't fair. And many people make the next step and they'll say, if there is a God and he sees what I see, then why isn't he doing anything about it? What is God doing with all of the injustice of this world? And many people will either conclude, I don't think there is a God, or I'm not sure God is as good as people often like to say he is. Those are some of the questions that our passage this morning deals with deals with the injustice in this world and what God does to address it. And what God says in, to ad address these questions is important enough. I want you to take not my word for it, but I want you to see it for yourself in the scriptures. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, if you want to use a pew Bible in front of you in the rack, it's on page 754. But I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 17, to chapter 3, verse 5. Malachi 2, 17 to 3, 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God. Now this passage starts where we often start, struggling with a world of injustice. Because when circumstances in our life don't make sense, when life doesn't feel fair, 
we often begin to question God. We, we question his existence. We question his goodness. We struggle with a world of injustice. Now, verse 17 gives what I, I think is, should be a shocking statement. Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And I'm reading that and thinking, what on earth do we have to do to wear out an all-powerful God, right? If God is omnipotent, how can we actually tire him out? And yet then I read what comes after that, and it becomes clear. Obviously, the people are asking some of the same questions because they say, how have we wearied him? But then we see their words. The people have worn God out with their complaints and their questions, with their wrong assumptions about who God is and what he's doing. Anyone who has spent, um, I don't know, like an hour with a toddler who has lost their favorite toy will understand some of the, uh, some of the feeling here and God getting just worn out with the questions. Uh, I, I know it for, for uh, in our family, uh, when Brooke lost her favorite toy, she had a stuffed animal. It was a, a, a little puppy. She called it Hashi Puppy. And heaven forbid that we should lose Hashi Puppy somewhere. Like she would just start repeating it over and over again. Where's my, where's my microphone? Where's, uh, she would just repeat over and over again. Where's my Hashi Puppy? Where's my Hashi Puppy? And I, I can still remember times being almost been reduced to tears thinking, if we don't find this Hashi Puppy, like I, if we hadn't have found it, I think she would still be asking the question. Like it just went on and on and on and it wears you down. It feels like I am not going to live through this. And something of that is happening here in that the people are wearing God down and wearing God out with their complaints and their questions. The people had worried the Lord with uh, two things. The first was dripping with sarcasm, and they're, they're um, both there in verse 17. The first thing that they said was, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, they didn't actually believe that God delights in people who do evil, but they were venting against God. It felt like God delighted in those who did evil because it just seemed like he never did anything about it. It seemed like he just let them go on with their lives and there was nothing being done about it. They felt a sense that if God is just, he should work. He should act. At this time, the Israelites were, they were looked down upon by their neighbors. Uh, people treated them like second-class citizens. Their, their life was hard. Their circumstances were hard. And it just didn't feel fair. It didn't feel like they mattered to God because he wasn't doing anything about it. He wasn't, he wasn't bringing down their enemies. He wasn't confronting the evil that they saw around them. It didn't seem like worshiping God counted for anything. And so they bring this complaint against him. The second thing they said was, where is the God of injustice? Where is the God of justice? See, they knew that God claimed to be concerned about justice. They just couldn't see it. 
They didn't see what he was doing. They couldn't see that he was really engaged. Because they didn't see justice now, they assumed that either there was no God or that God really wasn't good. They assumed that a delay in justice was a miscarriage of justice. Because God didn't judge sin now, it just they, they couldn't seem, that, seem to see that he would judge sin ever. And even as God begins to answer their questions, it's clear that they're probably not going to uh, take the, his answers to their questions all that well. They're probably going to be impatient with his answer. In chapter 3, verse 1, God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And at that point, they're thinking, like, messenger, prepare the way? Like, how long is this going to take? They wanted justice now. They wanted God to act, like, immediately. And this talk of, of a messenger and preparing the way, and take, like, God just seems to be taking way too much time. He, he just seems to be way too patient. The ironic thing is that as we've seen in this series, if you've been with us from the beginning, the people themselves were incredibly unjust. There were all kinds of problems with the the people in Malachi's day. From the priests on down, there was great injustice and great evil amongst the people. And yet, they were very much like I am. Getting wanting God to deal with the sin out there, wanting God to deal with evil out there and wanting God to be patient with me. They wanted God to act on other people's sin, but they wanted God to be merciful to their own sin. And so you have this struggle with them. I find that I'm really passionate about God dealing with other people's sins. But I want his mercy for mine. I'm impatient that God doesn't act sooner with other people, but I want him to be patient with me because I'm I'm still working at it. And so I, I wonder where this struggle with injustice leaves you. I wonder whether... You look at circumstances in your life and it just feels unfair. Or, or, or whether you're the person who turns on the news and you look at what's happening in our world and you just say, this just, doesn't, this just isn't right. This isn't good. And, 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 and you take that sense of injustice and you go one step further and say, where is God in that? What's he doing? Is he, is he really on the throne? Is he really sovereign in our world? Does he really care? Is he really good? We can easily take those struggles with our injustice and translate them into struggles with God. Well, God begins to answer these questions and in just a few verses, he lays out his plan to... Uh, bring justice to this world. It involves two parts. It begins with the refining of his followers. He starts with those people who should know, know, know better. He starts with the people who are closest to him. But it ends with the judgment of the world. Because God starts with those of us who should know better, who are closer to him, 
then that's where we're going to start this morning. God's justice begins with the refining of his followers. Now, before we see the message, I want you to see and maybe hear how the original hearers would have uh, heard uh, these words in in the opening verses of chapter 3. In verse 1, God says, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So God's going to send a messenger ahead of himself before he comes. And then it says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And if you're, if you're hearing that for the first time, you're thinking, okay, I understand this. The Lord whom I seek, that's, that's God. He's going to come to the temple, and, and I'm, I'm expecting that. So this is referring to God himself. But then he calls him the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. So this is a different messenger from the messenger who's going to prepare the way. There's a preparing messenger, and then there's this messenger of the covenant in whom we delight. And this messenger, if you read on, he seems to do some pretty substantial things. He's a messenger of the covenant, probably because he's bringing in a new covenant, because the, many of the prophets had been referring to that, that there was this coming new covenant that God would usher in. But this, this messenger of the covenant also has the power to refine and cleanse God's people. Who, who, who has power to do that other than God himself? And so everything in the passage so far has given us the indication God himself is going to come to the temple. He is going to refine his people. He is going to purify them. And that there will be a messenger that will come before he arrives. But if this messenger of the covenant is God himself, then the question you've got to ask is, who on earth sent him? Who on earth sent him? Because nobody ever calls a messenger someone who just delivers their own message. A messenger is someone who delivers somebody else's message. So if God's coming to the temple, then who sent God? Whose, whose message is God delivering? And so you have questions. And those questions seem to defy an answer until you recognize that these verses are pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus explicitly identified that preparing messenger of Malachi 3.1 with John the Baptist. In Luke 7.27, Jesus said of John the Baptist, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, exactly the way Malachi predicted he would. But then interestingly, Jesus came to his temple. He came to his temple, and what did he do? Did Jesus come to the temple and hang out and say, boy, this is great, I love it. Having a great time here. What a wonderful temple we've got. Is that what he did? No, Jesus famously brought out his whip. He got a whip and began to drive out the oxen and the sheep and those who were selling them. He turned over the, the, the tables of the money changers because he felt a sense of righteous passion for the holiness and the purity of God's temple. He began that work of refining that Malachi said he would do. He, he began that work of purifying the people of God, exactly the way Malachi predicted that he would. 
So this passage can only point to Jesus. But I want you to see how it answers the people's questions about injustice. Where is the God of injustice? What's God doing? In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So the people were asking, where's the God of justice? So it seems like God's giving them an answer. He's going to come. Behold, it's going to happen. You're going to see him. It sounds like God's answering their question, but it's not exactly the answer that they would have been anticipating. And it's not exactly the answer that you and I are often looking for. In verse 3, it says, He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Again, this isn't exactly what they were asking for. Because they wanted God to come. They were seeing injustice. They wanted God to come and go to the bad people. He wanted God to come and judge the evil people in the world. There was so much injustice going on, they wanted God to go there and deal with them. And God says, I'm coming, but I'm coming to you. God says, in effect, I'm going to show up unannounced in your temple, and I'm going to start with dealing with your sin, not theirs. And there's something about that that just doesn't feel fair to us, right? It, it doesn't feel right. It feels like God's got his priorities wrong. Like, we kind of, we, we figure we're not so bad. It's the other people that are the problem. It feels like we've kind of got it together. So God can just leave us as, as we are and go to those really bad people, the criminals, the oppressors. And God doesn't do that. He didn't do that in his promise to the people in Malachi's day, and he doesn't do it in our day. This message gets repeated in the New Testament. In, in, in 1 Peter 4.17, it says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Again, judgment begins at the household of God. It begins with God's people, but it will end with the judgment of the world. It doesn't feel right. Why is God disciplining his followers and purifying his people when he could be dealing with the really evil people out in the world? Why start with us? What's God's purpose? It just feels like he's mixed up. It feels like he's got the order wrong. And yet, obviously, he has a good plan, a good purpose, and he didn't get the order mixed up. There's a very important reason why God's justice begins with his followers. There's a very important reason, and the reason is that God's goal, his main purpose, is not the damnation of sinners, but it's the salvation of sinners. And what grace does is grace drives God to seek the salvation of those who are far from him. God's grace drives him on a rescue mission. And the problem is, if the church, if God's people cannot represent him, 
do not reflect him. Do not have his message, his voice, his character, and his holiness. Then there is no hope for the world. Then all there is, the only hope and expectation there is, is of judgment. And God's desire is to rescue as many as he possibly can. But in order to do that, he needs for you and I to reflect his character, to reflect his nature, to reflect something of who he is, and to speak for him, to be able to communicate not only who he is, but to communicate his plan to rescue those who would otherwise face that terrible judgment. What this means is that if it feels like God is harder on you at times, it's because his plan for you is is more important. If it feels like your circumstances are more demanding, it's probably because there's more at stake in your witness and in your holiness. If it feels like the non-Christians around you seem to have it easy it's be probably because they're not in his, his training program right now. God is equipping you. He is shaping you. He's working in each of our hearts because he has a purpose for our lives. And that purpose for our lives requires our refining. It requires our shaping. Shaping our understanding of him and his plan, shaping our character and our witness, shaping our reflection of his glory. I wonder if you've ever thought why the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested by Satan. It doesn't seem fair, does it? Was was God being unjust? Did, Did God not notice Was God not fair? Or was it instead the case that Jesus' mission was too important for Jesus not to be trained by the hardship that could only be found in the desert? Was it not the case that Jesus needed to learn things even in the context of great trial and temptation? that would equip him for his role, his role as our Savior, his role in testifying to a dying world. I believe the very thing that the Spirit led Jesus into the desert to accomplish is what he often does in leading us into desert trials in our own lives, that he might equip us and shape us and direct us. God seeking our purity and trust our courage, and our devotion. Because his plan is to use us to bring hope and salvation to a lost world. Now, when we say that God's refining us and training us, I think it's helpful to look at the words that God uses. Verse 2 says, For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. Verse 3 says that he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. The, The fire that is used to Purify metals is hot. It's powerful. And its goal is to burn off the impurities in the metal. 
I think what happens often in our lives is we will be in some trial or affliction and all we can feel is the heat. And it just feels hard. It's painful. And, and it feels, because the, hot, because the heat is, is so hot and, and painful, it feels like God's not fair, like God doesn't care, like God is somehow being unjust. But those times we need to remember that a refiner's fire is different than an arson's fire. A refiner's fire is hot, but it is a controlled heat. A refiner will keep the fire hot, just hot enough to burn off the impurities, but never to destroy the metal. An arson's fire, by contrast, is random. It is intent on destruction. There's no purpose in it. There is no, there's no control in it. It is, uh, it is a random act of violence. But God's purifying work in our lives, the refiner's fire does, does none of those things. It is controlled. It is with purpose. Its, its goal is to create in us gold and silver with the impurities in our life washed from us, clean clean from us. And when you know the reason for some of the trials is God's purpose for you, when you know that what he's doing is, is burning off that sin that would get, get in the way when your relationship with him, get in the way with your relationship with others, get in the way of your testimony and your witness to people who would otherwise have an opportunity to hear a message of salvation and hope, then you can begin to see some of God's purpose and even his mercy in your trials. You can begin to see what the God of justice is actually doing in dealing with the injustice of our world, starting with us and beginning his work through us. You may even come to the point that George Whitfield came to, George Whitfield came to the point where he recognized that God's refining work in him had good effect. And so he began to welcome it. He said this, May God put me into one furnace after another, that my soul may be transparent, that I may see God as he is. He recognized what God's fire did in his life in ridding him of those things that would otherwise hinder him. And not that he enjoyed the pain, not that he welcomed the difficulty, but he just he knew that God in his wisdom loved him deeply enough to do a deep work in his heart. And he welcomed it. So next time we we find ourselves struggling with the 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 work that he's doing in our lives, the the pain of it, the the hardship that can come, it's with a recognition that we're a part of what he's doing to deal with the injustice of our world. He refines us that we might be his instruments in ministering to others. But it's also with a recognition that God's God's justice ends with the judgment of the world. People will complain that God doesn't do more to address evil. And they'll even mock the idea of God's existence because 
if God were real, he'd be doing something about these things that we see in our world today. Those are the kinds of things people will say. But in saying those things, what they don't realize is that God's judgment is far more terrible than anyone typically realizes. And his judgment, when it comes, will be far more comprehensive than people will typically give him credit for. And so, in the meantime, God appears slow. He's patient. He waits. He waits to give every opportunity, every chance for people to turn and to repent. But God's justice will end with the judgment of the world. Once God is, has purified a people, he will come to them. Verse 5 introduces that final judgment in saying, Then, after I have purified my people, then I will draw near to you for judgment. Once God has purified a people who will represent him, once he has refined a people who will speak for him, once God has given the world every chance and opportunity to turn and to receive his salvation, then God will draw near for judgment. People will sometimes read that and discount that and say, that's just the Old Testament. God just seemed to be angrier back then. I'm into the New Testament where it just kind of seems to be all love. But in, in Matthew 16, 27, Jesus spoke almost the same words. He, he spoke as directly about this idea of judgment as the Old Testament prophets did. In Matthew 16, 27, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. See, the first time, Jesus came to bring salvation to the world. He came to bring God's mercy, hope, joy, the forgiveness that can be found in him. But he promised that the second time when he comes, he will bring judgment that the next time will be different than the first time. It'll be God's time's up moment, and it'll bring perfect justice. It'll be that time when God brings it all to an end. He will judge justly and righteously. And the thing about his justice is that his justice, when he brings it, it'll be according to his standard, not ours. It'll be according to his word, not our ideas. And so in verse 5, he says, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. If you read through that list, there are a lot of, a lot of injustices that our, our world is crying out about. A lot of things that people complain and say, this has got to be dealt with. Why isn't God doing something about this? And he makes clear here, he has heard our cries and he will bring swift justice. He will bring final judgment. So the verse, for instance, talks about uh, those who have gotten rich by mistreating and underpaying employees, they're going to be called to account. God will deal with them. Those who, for instance, have neglected or taken advantage of widows and the fatherless, they will be judged. There will be certain 
retribution for them. Those who have made life difficult for refugees and immigrants, they will be called to account. God cares about those things as deeply as you and I do. But God's list includes some other things as well. It's just a, this is just a little list. It's just one verse, right? I mean, we've had the whole Bible, but it's just giving us a little sampling. Even in this little sampling, we recognize God has heard our cries of injustice, and he agrees with them. He feels them just as deeply, even more. But he cares about other things as well. It's clear that God will also judge religious sin, which we don't even, like that's not even on the radar for most of us. He talks about judging those who practice sorcery, idolatry. He cares about truth. He cares about how people approach him. It even says those who do not fear him. Those who do not treat God as God, who do not give him the reverence and the honor that he is worthy of. Those who do not treat his word as holy in their lives. God will bring them to judgment as well. He also judges sexual sin. He makes that clear here in this verse. He takes it seriously. Again, for, for, for many people, we've just kind of redefined that and put it off the radar. It's also clear that he's not as tolerant as we'd like. He's not as progressive as we'd like. His justice is what we've been crying out for for centuries. But his justice, when it comes, will be based on his standard, not ours. It'll be based on his word. There'll be no surprises for us who, who should have known better. The problem is that many will be caught totally off guard. Many who even sit in churches Sunday by Sunday will be caught completely off guard because even in the church, many have become so accustomed to ignoring and redefining what God has said that when his judgment comes, they will be surprised, even shocked, totally unprepared for what comes because we have taken the word that he has given us and often redefined it or neglected it. And so we're not clear what it says anymore. We, we, we struggle to be clear about the things that God has tried to make clear. So verse 2 asks what I think is the only reasonable question a person could ask given all of this. It says, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? If you know that God's judgment is so terrible that he's delaying it as much as he possibly can, if you know that God's judgment is so comprehensive that he has sent messengers out to every corner of the globe, and if you know that God's standard is so high that every one of us stands condemned by it, then who can stand? Who can endure the day of his coming? It, it can't be those who've just tried their best. It, it can't be just those who are really sincere or really religious because it's many of those people that he's warning in this very passage of that day. The message of the scriptures is that Jesus is our only hope to stand on that day. He is not only the one who comes in judgment, he is the one in whom we can stand on that day of judgment. 
1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, Wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus alone can deliver us from the wrath to come because Jesus on the cross bore the wrath of God for sin. He, he, though he was innocent, though he had no sin or evil within him, he bore the righteous wrath of God for sin. And so the only people who will be able to stand on that day are those who, through repentance, turning from their sin, and faith, turning to Jesus Christ as their only hope, have lined themselves up behind him. Lined themselves up behind him with him taking our wrath. Him taking our wrath. Him taking wrath in our place. What he did on the cross, he bore it for us that we might be pardoned from it. He delivers those. Those who have lined up behind him will experience some of the same trials and hardship that he experienced. Those who line up behind him will experience some of that refining fire that God warned about here in Malachi. They'll experience some of that that fire because God cares about us enough that we would be a pure representative of him. And that we would be able, like Jesus Christ himself, to bring that message of hope through the gospel. That we would be able to perhaps rescue someone who would otherwise face that terrible judgment without hope, without the hope of forgiveness. So where is God at work in our world? Where is the God of justice? What's God doing when life seems so fair, so unfair? God is at work first refining his people, first shaping us, burning off the sin that would get in the way, not only of our relationship with him, but in, in the way of his task and mission for us to this world. But that work that he is doing now so patiently, so graciously, giving every opportunity for people to turn and to find him and find forgiveness in him, that work will eventually end in the judgment of the world. If you haven't turned to him to find that forgiveness that alone is in him, if you haven't lined up behind the one who has borne the wrath in our place, I'd urge you to come to him. And if you have, as you line up behind him in faith, don't be surprised when you take some of the hits, when you feel that you're in a similar training and equipping and a refining program of those who have gone before us. Because that is what God is doing to deal with the injustice of this world. And he wants us as his representatives to join him in seeking to address that injustice in his name. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we ask your forgiveness for wearying you and wearing you out with our complaints.
We sometimes get impatient with your patience. But we praise you for your grace. We stand in awe of your goodness and your love. Give us strength to cooperate with your refining program. Strip us of the sin that clings to us. Give us warm hearts that are ready to repent. And conform us to your word, to your will. Help us to be your instruments of justice in this world. Help us to lift up those our world looks down on. And help us to bring gospel hope to those who stand outside of your precious salvation. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.